Hi everyone, Wynn Claybaugh here. September and October are ovarian and breast cancer awareness months, making this the perfect time to hear from my next guest, Lindsay Abner. With a long family history of breast cancer and ovarian cancer, Lindsay bravely opted at age 23 to have a preventative double mastectomy, making her the youngest woman in the United States to take that step. To educate and equip other women to prevent those cancers or detect them early, Lindsay founded the nonprofit organization Bright Pink. In this timely and informative podcast, she discusses her personal story, her choices, and the incredible organization she launched. Please share her important message with all the women in your life. Then visit masterspodcastclub.com to sign up for a mailing list. And remember... Masters podcasts are now available on Apple, Google, iHeartRadio, and Spotify podcasts. Enjoy this Masters classic interview. Hi, everybody. Wynn Claybaugh here. Welcome to this issue of Masters. And I just love the opportunity that I have nowadays to be able to use this platform uh, and this listening audience to uh, not only help people grow their business, help them to fix relationships, give them resources to become better human beings, have more self-esteem, whatever it is, we also get to educate people about very, very worthy causes. And I love brand new charitable organizations. You know, Not that I don't love the big ones, because we do, but I am, for some reason, much more motivated to get behind a startup, so to speak, because uh, I love the grassroots effort when it's the person who started it is still involved on a regular basis and it's your passion and it's your vision and it's your personal story and personal stories are always the best Mm. and that's what today is all about. So I'm sitting here with the amazing Lindsay Abner from Bright Pink. So Lindsay, welcome to Masters. Thank you so much for having me. Such a treat. I wish today were video because people need to see how beautiful you are. Oh Oh my gosh. (laughs) So we're going to... We got to get onto the social media stages here and and uh, post videos and photos of you too because uh, it's not just that you're beautiful, but that's the smile and what radiates from you. And obviously, you're doing something that you're passionate about, which I, is also the most attractive part of a person. Oh, that's so nice. I feel so blessed to have been able to marry my profession and my passion and have it all just kind of intervene as one. I mean, I think that's the greatest gift of all. That's the best life ever. You know, when people get to do what they love to do and make money at it or make a difference with that, that's that TGIF thing was invented by people who have different lives than you and I. I love it. We're so blessed. Yeah, we are blessed. Truly. Which is why, because we're blessed, we need to talk about the stuff that we're going to talk about today. Awesome. So I'm just going to read this bio uh, to make sure that I get it right. So Lindsay Abner is the founder CEO of Bright Pink, a national nonprofit on a mission to save women's lives from breast and ovarian cancer by empowering them to live proactively at a young age. Bright Pink's innovative programs educate and equip women 18 to 45 years old and the medical professionals who care for them to reduce their risk for breast and ovarian cancer or detect these diseases at early non-life-threatening stages. Their unique approach to educate young women and medical professionals is the first of its kind effectively transitioning a national conversation from breast and ovarian cancer awareness to one focused on teaching tangible life-saving action. 
Boy, that's a mouthful, huh? Mm. That's quite the mission statement. <laughs> it's a lot of stuff we're trying to do, but I think it just boils down to how can we get in front of a problem, right? Like how do we not just sit back and wait until someone's diagnosed with cancer to start exerting influence and change? How do we get in front of it? But what was the age that people said, now you're at a certain age, you need to become aware Gosh, well, I feel like for years, you know, the breast cancer awareness movement has just continues to pick up momentum over the last several decades. And yet I feel sometimes so frustrated because while we've been able to inundate the world with pink, right, and and get women to run in 5Ks and, and buy the pink product and whatnot, um, that awareness has not necessarily transitioned into action. So what you'll find sometimes is a woman who will say, you know, I'll change my profile picture on Facebook and make it pink, has no idea that her breast tissue goes all the way up to her collarbone. Or, you know, she's willing to put a pink ribbon on her backpack for school, but she doesn't realize that her father's side of the family history matters just as much as her mother's. And so I think for us, it's how do you actually break this down in a way um, that's not scary and that's not making people feel bad about all that they're not doing, but instead encourages them to know what they are doing right, that's working in their favor, and then exert influence where they can to change some of those aspects that they can change. But I mean, you say it here, you're looking to uh, educate and equip women starting at 18 years old. Yeah. That was not the age before. The age was, well, when you hit 40, you maybe you it. might need to think about this. You Why 18? Good question. Well, you know, as everything in life, in our 20s and 30s, that's the times when we're establishing our behaviors that are going to last a lifetime, right? right? So much happens in our lives. We turn 18, you know, some people go off to college, you go and you get your first career, you transition from that big kind of life movement of living at home into living on your own. Um, people are, are meeting their life partner, they're starting families, they're evolving in their careers. All this stuff is happening. And part of what we believe is that if you can get women talking about health as part of those changes instead of cancer, right? Health and cancer are two different things. If we can add health to that list of things that she's caring about and focusing on, that should there become a problem later on, um, she's so used to knowing what her normal is. She's so used to being proactive um, that it just is, okay, something's not right. I need to take action. And I think the other thing I would say, when is that this is really hard stuff, like creating urgency when there's not a problem is tough. Like people, are, we're all so busy. We have a million things we're thinking about. Sometimes it's always the, what I always tell my team, it's the stuff that's the non-important urgent stuff that always seems to trump everything. And yet um, this is some really, really, really important stuff that we need to help women get in front of. Um, and so it could take us five, six, 10 years before she actually resonates. So that's why starting at 18 is so critical. Okay. Plus at 18, you're invincible. You're not oh, thinking yeah. that I'm at risk at this age. Yeah, but it's such an important moment. I think this is something where, again, if you're trying to get ahead of something, helping it become part of the dialogue at that age um, and helping people realize you're not being proactive with your health because you're going to get cancer. We don't know the fate of what will happen, right. but what a perfect moment to say, you know what, I am someone who's proactive with my health. I am going to the doctor once a year. I am talking to my family about my health history. I am practicing um, risk-reducing aspects of lifestyle. Like that is absolutely the time. Okay. So do you mind if I ask how old you are? Yeah, no, I'm 32. Okay, you're 32. And I'm going to ask you about your story, but I want to give our listeners a little bit more so among Lindsay's growing list of honors, in 2014, you were named 
one of Crane's Chicago's Business 40 Under 40. Congratulations. And you have worked and been profiled with reputable media, including the Chicago Tribune, MSNBC, Women's Health Magazine, The Today Show, and CNN. Through Bright Pink, Lindsay has sparked a national movement that empowers young women everywhere to put awareness in action. And I also like how you, and we'll expand on this, you said that it's health versus cancer. Yeah. Awareness versus cancer. So, yeah. okay. So just tell us what is Bright Pink and then we'll get into your own personal story. So we are a national nonprofit and our whole focus is that if we can reach women at a young age and empower them with the knowledge and the tools and the resources and the support, um, that's the way we're going to be able to save their lives from breast and ovarian cancer. And we also focus on reaching the doctors um, who care for them. One thing I think that was really surprising to me is um, there was a gap out there in what doctors were learning and med school and residency about how to best care for women as it relates to their health. And so Bright Pink had spent all this energy educating women, you know, get to your doctor. And, and women were going to the doctor and sometimes they knew more than their doctor knew. So we've actually separated the organization into almost a two-pronged approach where we're reaching young women, but we're also reaching OBGYNs, internal medicine, family medicine residents, as well as nurse practitioners. So it's this beautiful equation that if you can empower a woman and she has a doctor who's ready to partner with her, that's how we can save lives. How, how difficult is that second prong? I mean, how open are the doctors and medical practitioners to somebody like you, an organization, coming yeah. in and saying, hey, you guys, you don't know what you need to know? It's a good question. Well, you know, and originally um, we had piloted this program at Northwestern and NYU for a couple years. And it's actually not me who's coming to deliver the talk. We actually have 40 trained physicians from around the country that Bright Pink has trained, and we send them in to do the learning modules and the lecture. I originally thought that we can only educate the residents because they are young and they're in the process of learning, and that's the only way it's going to take. You can't teach an old dog new tricks, so right. to say. We have been blown away that we were absolutely wrong. It's almost as though those that are practicing physicians are like, thank you so much for breaking it down in such an easy to comprehend way. You've actually helped me raise my game. And I think that's something that we're all after, right? Is is how do we, if there's a problem and yet we know the solution, how do we go after the solution and not sit there and fuss about all that is wrong? I know you've been such a, a force in that way of how do we focus on on the good and not the bad mm -hmm. um, and lean into that. So the program's blown our minds. I mean, we will be within 100 of the 240 OBGYN residency programs. And I think the, the one of the things I'm most proud of is that by 2018, there will not be an OBGYN in the United States who goes into practice without being trained by Bright Pink. Pretty spectacular. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, tell us your personal story because uh, I think anybody who makes a difference or most organizations that are making a difference started with the per mm -hmm. someone's personal story. Yeah. So I guess my personal story starts actually way before I was even born. My, um, my grandma and great-grandmother, so my mom's mother and her grandmother, died a week apart both from breast cancer at the ages of 39 and 58. And wow. it was so upsetting to me that my mom always tells me they were so close and yet neither one knew how sick the other one was. And it was like my grandma Sandra went into a coma and then her mother Lillian was like 
worried about Sandra. And, and literally six days apart, they died. And my mom was 18 at the time. And I think at that time, you know, people just didn't talk about cancer. So when we talk about the fact that we have evolved to a place where it, it's possible to talk about breast and ovarian cancer open, um, I think that's progress. I still think about like what that must have been like for them. I mean, it's just, and, and for my mom who, you know, comes home from her freshman year of college to six days apart, losing the two people closest to her in her life. Um, in addition to those two people, nine others on my mom's side of the family had lost their battles to breast or ovarian cancer. Wow. Pretty incredible. So 11 women total. When my mom was 41, she was diagnosed first with breast cancer. I was 12 years old at the time, and I remember coming home from school and seeing my dad's car in the driveway, and I was like, something's not right. Like, why is he home at 3 o'clock? Like, he just was never, ever home. And I had that, like, sunken feeling in my belly where I was like, oh, gosh, this isn't good. And it was interesting because when I walked in and I saw my parents look at me and my dad said, your mom has breast cancer – I almost like flashed to this moment of like at her funeral, like what you had seen in the movies and the TV shows around like what it's like to be at a funeral. I was 12 years old. Um, it didn't even occur to me that anyone would fight breast cancer or ovarian cancer and actually survive. That had never happened in our family. Um, she was pretty incredible. I have to just say like she was told by many doctors, oh, just come back once a year. And she was like, you know what? I think I'm high risk. This is before we even knew about these genetic mutations or anything. Um, she was so used to knowing what was normal for her body that she had a swelling on the side of her right breast. And she like demanded the doctors figure out what it was. And the doctor was like, it's fine. It's nothing. It's a bug bite, whatnot. They went in and they hit something. It was early stage cancer. So my mom is pretty incredible in that way. Mm. Um, 10 months after that, we thought she was in the clear. You know, our hair was growing back from chemo. At the time I was 13, very fun being a 13-year-old girl in the middle school years. Um, and her, her stomach started getting bigger, bigger, bigger. And all of a sudden, she lost feeling at the, in the top of her right leg. And she went into the doctor and said, oh, my God, look what the chemo did to me. And the doctor was like, get into the x-ray room. Um, and they basically determined that she had a 21 and a half inch cancerous mass in her ovaries. The next night they pulled it out. So at 13, I was told say goodbye to her because they're not going to be able to get this cancerous mass so this out of her. Again. again, and it felt like it was one of those like tricks. Like you think like, oh, if we just got over the breast cancer, which we did, you can breathe a sigh of relief. And yet there we were in a situation and it felt so, um, I think it felt so like crappy to be on the side of things where it's like, you're having to make decisions really quick and everything's moving so fast and there's so much at stake. And like, we were literally playing defense, not offense, right? I think that was something at a young age I was very thrown by was like, all of a sudden we have to like do this. And um, miraculously, truly a miracle, the doctors in New York at Sloan Kettering say this was literally beyond their wildest expectations. She survived that surgery. And so I grew up really young. I mean, at, at a young age, I you know grew up and she went through more chemotherapy. And you have that moment where you start to plead with God and you're like, God, if you can only like save my mom, I'll feel, I'll do anything in my power to help other people. Um, and I say that because I think everyone has that like moment when something pretty powerful in their life hits them. Not only, I would say it wasn't as though a, a guilt feeling, this responsibility I felt. I think it was more that, through it all, my parents, I just think, had raised me to be somebody who 
was service oriented. They were mm. always sitting on charitable boards. They were always, um, my dad tells a story how they were living in government subsidized housing and they would decide how much they wanted to give to charity in January and charge it on their credit card because they didn't want to look back on that number. And they were like, we'll pay it off over years, if, but that's what the right thing to do is. So I grew wow. up in this environment where it was like, um, you know, we are so blessed no matter what you have or don't have. How are you going to leave a legacy for good? Um, and so that really inspired me to just say, what can I possibly do to make it different? That being said, there was like the other side of me that was like, nonprofits are slow and clunky and like it's not the sharpest people. And I'm so attracted more to the business savviness of people who are pushing hard and aggressive and growing and changing and evolving. And um, so I started my career. I went to the University of Michigan and started my career at Unilever in marketing and brand management, um, working a whole bunch of different personal care brands. And it was really interesting because I always kind of thought my parents were always integrated charity and philanthropy really nicely into their lives. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll do that like 20, 30 years from now. Right. I, I should say, though, right after I graduated college, my mom had said my parents were moving to Florida and, and she said, you know what, I think you should come with me. I just got this genetic test done and I think it'd be interesting to you to find out all those like little science new discoveries I was always very interested in. Um, to me, it didn't even occur to me what was about to happen, which was my life was about to change forever. Wait, I, how long ago was this? Um, this was, so I was 22, so 10 years ago. I just graduated from college. How long ago did they start doing those genetic tests that oh, would Good determine? question. It's only in the last 15 years. So when my right, mom so, was going through everything. So here your mom was still on the cutting edge. Always, always. I mean, she was so advanced that when she had her ovarian cancer before that, she goes, I want you to bank my blood because if I got hit by a bus tomorrow, I think they're going to come up with stuff and I want my daughter to have access to my, I mean, just that intuition blows your mind in right. some ways. When I went into, but, but after I graduated college and I went in for this appointment, again, this has now been made so popular and famous by Angelina Jolie, right, right. Um, who came in out and said, I tested positive for this genetic mutation. I have to say when going into that testing appointment, I was convinced that I was doing this genetic test, this test that can indicate an extremely increased likelihood for breast and ovarian cancer. I was undergoing this test basically to verify that I was more like my dad's side of my family than my mom's. And I say that because I was built like them. I, you know, skinny arms and legs, fat tummy, <laughs> if I, I gained weight, like small chest, flat butt, like everything in my life was like more like my dad's and my mom's. Um, and so when I did find out that I tested positive for this genetic mutation, basically indicating I had up to an 87% risk of breast cancer to a 54% risk of ovarian cancer, I was 22 years old, I was shocked. How do you process that news? Oh my God. Can I tell you the thing that just went through my mind, which was um, I got to hurry up and get married and have kids and I got to do all this before I get cancer. And it's you know, in my family, it, it struck 36, 39, 41, like really, really young. I was really like almost upside down. I was, I was like crying hysterically. My colon had gone into spasms. I was in the emergency room that summer. I mean, it was, it was like one of those things where you feel like you're on top of the world, you're graduating, you're starting this dream marketing job. And then all of a sudden it's like cancer. Like I didn't think I would have to deal with that till for two more decades, and here it was in front of my face. Um, originally, I like enrolled in a high-risk screening program at the University of Chicago, and and somebody had said to me, you know, there's options. You can have a double mastectomy. And I said, a double mastectomy? You got to be kidding me. Like, there's not one part of me, 22 years old, I'm like 
dating? Like how in the world would I make a decision? That's off the table. I want to go in. I want to do the screening. So every six months I was going for a mammogram, an MRI, a clinical breast exam, a transvaginal ultrasound. I mean, crazy, crazy amount of screening. And it's interesting when, because um, it was interesting, like mentally, what it does to you. Because here you are going through all these tests, but you're not sick, but you're around all these people that are sick. So I think in some ways it was like, oh gosh, I was taking half day of work every couple months to get these screenings. I'd go and I'd hold my breath and hope it would be okay, find out everything was fine, breathe that sigh of relief and know, okay, in a couple months, we got to do this all over again. And and I jumped into a serious relationship. I was like, you know, he's tall and he's nice enough, I guess. And he's fine. And like, <laughs> nice I can't like, <laughs> I don't have time. I got to right. move. Right. And, um, which is so wacky because he was like, actually like, so <laughs> such like kind of a putz, but anyway, okay. um, I take that. I <laughs> It was just like you come, you you look at yourself right. at that age and you're like, what was I thinking? But it was interesting because I started, the anxiety continued to build. It was as though like, it was like the relationship wasn't moving fast enough. My career wasn't moving fast enough. Every aspect, I had to move, I had to hurry up, I had to go, I had to go because I was going to get cancer. And so when I actually had this incredible epiphany, I was getting dressed like most 22-year-old girls when you're was with your my college friends. One was in LA at the time, one was in New York, real in Chicago. Um, and we were in our jeans and our bras and we were putting makeup on and we were about to go out for a really fun night. And I looked over and I realized, oh my gosh, here these friends are from college of mine. And they actually had had breast surgeries. They'd opted for them. One had had a breast reduction, one had had breast implants, one had had a breast lift. Like here they are in this situation. Um, and I thought to myself, I have all of this anxiety about cancer and all this is over a couple of scars, a couple of scars, really? For some reason, when I was able to not think about it as a mastectomy, which felt so afraid and scary and awful and not beautiful, and I was able to just think about it as just a couple of scars on the sides of my breast, much unlike other people who opt for scars for different reasons, um, all of a sudden I was like, I can't do this screening. This is crazy. I can't keep holding my breath and breathing this eye relief and turning around and rushing into relationships that are not great for me. Like that, that's not the reality I want for my life. And so it was kind of at that moment that I made this decision that I'm not going to play defense. I'm going to get in one step ahead of this and I'm going to have a risk-reducing double mastectomy. And at the time when there had been no one my age who had made a decision like that. And so I, went, I remember going to the doctors in Chicago and, and them saying, one doctor was like, you know, you're, you're thin. Just keep running every day and come back and see me when you're 30, which is crazy. And another doctor was like, I will not do this on you because you're not married. I don't know how you'll ever get married if you do that a surgery. Did that have to? That I mean, was these are prestigious oh physicians at great institutions. So I ended up going back to the same doctor who had performed my mom's um, surgery 14 years before her breast cancer surgery. And he was the first person who was like, Lindsay, you're not crazy. This isn't like wishful thinking. This is scientifically proven. And um, I think I can get a really good cosmetic outcome. I think we could like actually just have literally a couple of scars and we can have with implants. It'll all be fine. Um, and so I went into that surgery having really no idea what the outcome would be, but I knew it couldn't be worse than the anxiety I was feeling. How much did you tell people that you were going to do this? Did you, no you, you kept it a oh secret? Oh my gosh. And I to remember, your friends? I mean, didn't know. very few. I mean, I think five people total, including my parents knew. And, and did it, you get any grief from any of them? Well, or? I had my mom who was saying to me, honey, don't tell anyone about this because it's going to get around. It's going to travel. And like, 
you're still dating. Like if people are, it's almost like you're damaged goods in some ways, right? Like here I am in that situation. So not only was I carrying the weight of a big surgery, but also the weight of like feeling like I had this secret I couldn't talk about. It's interesting what you were saying before, because I never thought of it that way. Other people are going under the knife all the time. And people are like, wow, they look good. Good for you. Whereas you're going under the knife to save your life. You got it. And to say that I actually don't want to go through chemotherapy ever. Like I don't want to just have to wait and get cancer and then deal with that. I want to one day, God willing, have a daughter who doesn't have a mom who's sick with cancer. Like that's what I want to do. Um, so when I originally, I I made the decision, um, I was the youngest person in the country ever to opt for this surgery. You were 22. I was 23. Yeah. At the time, 23 years old. And I will tell you, it almost flipped though. Cause after the surgery, I was like, wait, this is crazy. All of that was for this. Like I, I have like good breasts. They, I have two little scars (laughs) on the outer quadrants. Like they look normal. I'm not this damaged person. Um, and so a friend, a family friend was like, you know what? You need to share this story because there's got to be another person out there who's going through a similar situation. And it was almost as though these scars became very like powerful, like, like reminders to me of courage. And I actually was very more proud of them. I remember wearing a dress right afterwards and like you could see a little bit of the scar. I'm like, it's totally fine. Totally fine. Like, like this is part of me. That's pretty cool that I like made a decision um, like that. But I got to tell you, when I originally, so I shared my story, they ran a front page article in the Chicago Tribune. And the the article of the story was weary of cancer's dark cloud, young woman strikes first. And the next day it was this media like uproar, but it was, you know, the Today Show and CNN and all this stuff. It wasn't because it was, um, it was the spectacle of it all, right? Like, do you remember the guy who like turned blue or the person who got like a fork stuck in their head. Like it was the weird story. Like young woman chops off her breasts. Like, what do you think of her doctor? Like, what would you do? Could you ever do that? And we didn't know any better. We were like, oh my God, we're helping to save people's lives. That's amazing. But I'll tell you, I was shocked at some of the like the negative response that like started to unfold. I mean, people, I remember somebody posted on this blog on CNN, um, can someone tell Lindsay Avner that she's not God and she can't control everything? Or someone else was like, "Um, maybe you should cut your brain out because maybe that could cause a problem one day. And you're like, what? Like, you gotta be kidding me. But I will tell you that that was the negative side. The flip side of that was that more than a thousand women around the country reached out to these writers and the producers and what they said. And I was so compelled because I've seen so many touching stories in the news, but I've never actually like written the writer, like called the producer or whatnot. But what they said is they said um, her story resonated with me. And it was not because all these people had strong family histories or may have the genetic predisposition, although some of them did. What they said was, I don't even know what I should be doing to like be in front of breast cancer. Like, I don't even know what a family history actually means in my family because we don't talk about stuff like that. And it became so evident to me that this was such a need on the heels of this like awareness movement for an organization to come in and to say, you are totally 
exactly where you should be, but let me break down what the actual facts are. This isn't just getting your information off the news, hearing, you know, eat three pounds of broccoli every day and you're not going to get cancer. I mean, that's the way we were getting our health information instead of somebody saying, you know, it's so important to maintain a healthy body weight because, you know, when there's extra fatty tissue, it can increase estrogen, which increases breast cancer risk. Or did you know that um, a concerning breast lump would feel like a frozen pea? But don't, automatically freak out because 80% of the time it's not cancerous, but if it grows or it worsens or persists, get it checked out, go to your doctor, you know, be an advocate. And that's the conversation, the way we started talking about it. How prepared were you at the age of 23 to be this target, so to speak, let alone then have the facts and the information to be a good resource Oh, I was not prepared at all. Like, to be fair. And I also didn't keep in mind, I remember just thinking, how would I ever email a thousand people back? I remember, I laugh now because you and I both probably go through millions of emails every Mm -hmm. single day. But at the time I was like, I'm just going to start a website that's a resource for information. But again, I had no intention of starting, leaving my full-time job. I was working full-time at Unilever. Um, I was so excited, actually. One of those like rare people who was so excited about the corporate ladder. Like I was like, I am going to dominate the corporate world. I was like, it's fast. It's aggressive. It rocks. I love this. Nonprofits. Oh, nonprofits are, are slow and they're... They're so nice, but they're just so <laughs> uh, like tired. And, and it's funny because when you talked about in the beginning of this conversation around the entrepreneurial, the startup feel, right? And we consider ourselves so much more of a business than we do ourselves a nonprofit. We're just in the business of saving women's lives. Well, I think that, I mean, a little sideline, nonprofits could learn a lot from for-profit companies. And for-profit companies could certainly learn a lot from nonprofits about you know, using your platform and your power for good things. Totally. I couldn't agree more. And I think that um, where we're moving is more in that intersection, right? So um, part of what's allowed us to be really strong is partnering with brands that get it, that really get it, that are willing to kind of go out there and use the reach and the visibility and the credibility they have with consumers to say, hey, in addition to buying this product or engaging with us in this way, how about you also in our words, brighten up on the breast and ovarian health basis. You know, go back, you know, you said that you're, every couple of months you're going in for more screening and just the anxiety of all of that. Yeah. What was that doing to your health and to your personality and to just trying to live with that? It's a huge thing. I mean, anyone who's been through any sort of like health situation can probably really, I actually started getting horrible, horrible migraine headaches. And what happened is it started off with like one or two migraines Yeah, that's attractive a on a date. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> that's really good And for I dating. remember actually that that ex-boyfriend of mine was like, you used to be so fun and cool, and now you just have headaches. And I'm like, <laughs> See, maybe he wasn't you're still at all. just maybe nice just... enough. Like, you're not that nice, actually, right? <laughs> poor guy. What I you put know. him through. Oh, it's my so gosh. True. This poor guy. It's so true. But I will say. Take um, it back. He wasn't a putz. He was a I ghost. know. You just know kidding. what? I was probably a little bit of a putz, too. Let's okay. be honest. But um, what I would say is that those headaches continue to get worse and worse. Right? right? Like your body, I believe, I mean, I think your body has this unbelievable ability to just say like, something's not right. And yeah, just what you're doing is not working. Just listen not to your body. Working. You got it. You got it. And I actually, there was a point where I had had a migraine headache consistently for, I think like six weeks straight. I was in the emergency room trying to like get the pain under control. And I was like, this is crazy. Like at what expense? At a couple of scars? Really? So... It was powerful. How soon after the surgery did it just feel like you just 
came back to immediately. Life. Immediately, my mom says that after I was being wheeled out of the operating room, I don't remember this because I was obviously a little woozy, but she says that I said it's finally going to be okay, mom. Hmm. And she said that she started to cry because um, you know it's interesting. She had a lot of guilt. We it took us about a year to repair our relationship because I remember um, that year between when I tested positive and decided to have the surgery. I would go into those appointments and I would leave and I would be crying and I'd call my mom and I'd be like, this is so hard. I like don't know what to do. Like, why is this happening? And she would say to me, Lindsay, I don't know what to tell you. Lindsay, I don't know what you want from me. And I was like, what? Why is she acting like that? And it was interesting because after the surgery, and she was amazing through the surgery, she said to me, she goes, I couldn't cope with the guilt that I felt. The guilt that I felt that I used to tell you when you were a little girl and you were 12, you're like, what happens if I get breast cancer? And I was like, honey, well, you'll never have to deal with cancer. They're going to have a cure by then. You'll never. She's like, and here you were at 23 years old um, going through something that I felt so guilty about. And I was like, how could you feel guilty? It wasn't your fault. Like you didn't do anything. But um, no one ever talks about that side of it, right? Like the guilt you feel that like to passing something like that down. Do you have sisters? Um, I have one brother who's adopted. Okay. Yeah. So, um, it was really amazing though, after I shared my story is, and, and being able to finally find that network of other people who had similar situations Mm -hmm. to kind of become that, um, extended family, so to say, right. People who had that feeling of growing up with so much cancer looming in the air. Cause I think that, that anyone who's dealt with that or illness of any kind or, or adversity of any kind, there's it humbles you and it makes you, I think, that much more kind and compassionate to How other people. How important was the Angelina Jolie message to your whole movement? Amazing. It was one of the greatest things that could have happened. Here, you know, it's the world's sexiest movie star who is just so, um, I think people are fascinated by, but also she's married to Brad Pitt. She's everything. And she comes out and the way she was able to position her decision to both undergo testing and say, I'm going to make this decision and I'm still going to be the sexiest woman in the world. It was so huge for us. And it's funny because I remember I got that story embargoed the night before. I was out in LA for some meetings and I remember reading it at midnight and I went to sleep and I thought to myself, oh, that's really awesome. That's cool. She's having the surgery too. It didn't even cross my mind that it would become the whirlwind it was. And it's funny because at four o'clock in the morning, it's um, bright pink and myself were called upon as the national experts. I think we did 19 interviews before noon that day wow. across you know, USA Today and, and Today Show and, and NBC and all, all these different networks. But I'll tell you, it didn't occur to me because to me, I think it was like, it's just another person going through this. People are starting to talk about, but um, never in our wildest dreams would we think it would be, you know, the Angelina effect. So is what it was called. Cover of Time magazine, the hugest thing in that You had time. a chance to meet her? I have, and I hope I will at one point, yeah. one day. Angelina. Yeah. <laughs> we're calling you. So what else about your personal story do you feel like we need to know that then kind of sets us up for what your campaign is all mm. about, what your organization is all about? I would just say... Because, again, say, I love personal... I think the best teachers are storytellers, mm-hmm. and the best stories are personal stories. Always. Yeah, I think the, the thing that's actually interesting to me, the part of my story that, like, sometimes, obviously, we're a breast-obsessed culture, so the breast part gets a lot of play. Right. Um, you know, ovarian cancer is the deadliest gynecologic disease 
it's very rare, but it's very, very, very deadly. And so um, for women who carry this BRCA gene, the breast cancer gene, people think often that it's just the breast cancer. When, you know, the recommendations, we don't have a good screening tool for ovarian cancer. The recommendations are, you know, get your ovaries out at 35, 40 at the latest, which is menopause, right? Mm -hmm. Throwing yourself in there. The only part of my story that I would add that I just recently started talking about um, about a year ago is I um, once again was inching towards that the big three O and I started to once again, find myself saying, Oh gosh, like I'm single. I've poured my heart and soul into growing this organization. Like my ovaries have to come out in five years. Like I really want to be a mom one day. What does that mean? And so I actually made the decision to freeze my eggs. Um, at what age? At 30. Very ironic. And also I think quite beautiful. The exact same week I was choosing to freeze my eggs. My now fiance was getting a consultation for a vasectomy because he actually is a widower. He lost his wife to breast cancer at the age of 30. I'm sorry, she died at 42. She was diagnosed at 35. Um, and he had three kids and he was like, you know, I'm, and he decided to postpone it because he wanted to run another marathon. He's one of those ridiculously overachieving. I'm going to, I'm going to, do everything in my life to the extreme um, in a great way. And so it's so, it, we look back on that. I will tell you that was a powerful decision as well. A chance to say like, I'm not going to just settle. I'm not going to, I'm going to take my own fertility into my own hands. And I think it's something that is just a, all this medical technology advances married with like the ability for women to make a decision mm -hmm. for good. Like it's, it, blows my mind. Mm -hmm. I think it's just, it's so awesome how many opportunities we have to take control of our lives and do things on our own terms. Mm -hmm. Do you still feel kind of uh, uh, vulnerable or exposed in telling your story over and over and over again? Because that's obviously, it's your story that drives Bright Pink and the mission and the purpose. Does it do you feel kind of vulnerable? Well, I think this is such a cool format to be able to actually tell the story, right? Usually mm -hmm. I have like five sentences and I have to boil down like really complicated issues into like very, very compact sound bites. And to have a chance to like really like get in there with it is actually really refreshing. I will say the one thing as you were just saying that it made me think is it's crazy how the, I thought the story kind of stopped when I made, had the mastectomy. It was like, oh yeah, like I conquered breast cancer. And yet, you know, obviously making the decision to freeze my eggs, meeting my fiance, um, he has three kids that are 11, 14, and 17 that may or may not carry this gene as well, right? And um, as we embark on kind of more kids and, and family, and what does that mean for them? And also just this fact that like my, my ovaries are going to come out in a couple of years. So I feel like that's the part that is so cool is that and it's about all of our lives and all of our stories is it's not like there's an ending point right like it always keeps evolving like no matter where you are today like two years from now you're gonna look back and be like whoa like that's crazy what's happened in the last couple of years so talk to us about bright pink what do you do on a daily basis yeah so we are um our, our whole focus is, I like to say, active education. So it's not just passing out flyers or, you know, saying the same thing over and over. It's having a conversation with women and giving them the tools and those little nuggets of things that they can do in their day-to-day -day life to be proactive with their health, to play offense. We 
host educational workshops. So we call them Brighten Up Educational Workshops. Brighten Up Workshops. Brighten Up Workshops. So they're 20-minute workshops. We go into companies, places of worship, um, sororities. We just started an incredible national partnership with Zeta Ta Alpha. So we're going to be educating over 100. Zeta Ta Alpha. It's one of the largest sororities in the country. So we're going to be educating 150,000 collegiates members in the next two years through these workshops. Um, So we train ambassadors, lay women, to actually go in and deliver, imagine like 20 minutes, everything you need to know, nothing you don't about being proactive with your breast and ovarian health. Um, We also have a digital component. So assessyourrisk.org is the digital articulation because we're trying to reach 52 million women, 52 million women in the U.S. between the ages of 18 and 45 that have the power to be proactive. And so it's this idea that you can reach them in person where they live, work, play, but you also need to be reaching them online, which is where she's at. So assessyourrisk.org. You got it. So somebody goes there and what happens? It's like a series of questions that determines their level of risk or yeah so it basically is 15 or so questions but it's it's not just type in the answer it's actually really fun so it's going to ask you how many drinks do you have a week and you can actually have to drag the wine glass over to show or um, what your (laughs) what your weight is and you're going to move the scale once it's very interactive but along the way it's actually giving you the explanation for why so it's combining all of these different aspects when it asks you questions about family history if you don't know the the answer there's a button that says help me ask and it'll pre-populate an email and all you have to do is type in to get that answer from a family member and at the end of this it's really awesome you can download a pdf to bring to your doctor you can actually email the results to your doctor and say hey i just took this quiz and i want to strike up a conversation with you about what more i can do to be proactive with my health so we're hoping to have 70,000 women complete this in 2015 in 2013 and 2014 combined so in two years we had 60,000 complete it we're looking for 70,000 new women and 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 some men to complete it as well there's it's funny the first question is do you have breasts and or ovaries and if someone says no if it's a man that's answering it's like awesome, then please forward this to a woman that you love that does have those. So it's very, very interactive. It's cheeky. It's playful. But it's actually this beautiful ability to combine not only risk information, but also educate you along the way. And then at the end, it'll tell you, you know, based on your responses, you're actually either at average risk. So even being at average risk, though, every single woman out there has at least a one in eight lifetime risk of breast cancer. Meaning you think of your seven closest girlfriends and you statistically at least one of you will develop cancer in your lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so even whether you're average risk or increased or even high risk, high risk like someone like myself or an Angelina Jolie, um, I love saying that, right? Like I love talking me about me, just me and Angelina, me and Angelina. or BFFs, yeah. um, hanging out. <laughs> um, it gives you what to do next. We're very practical in that way. I don't like education that just tells you information and you say, okay, so what? I like when it, there's an active component. I, I agree. It's like people that do surveys and the here's the survey here are the results i'm like what does this mean what are so we supposed what? to do with this totally got totally. the facts but who cares totally okay and then the other side is what we talked about before so those medical professional workshops so we um go into programs where nurse practitioners or OBGYNs are learning whether it's um what's called grand rounds when all of the department gets together to learn about a new topic um and and these workshops and case modules are delivered and you know i have to tell you it's been incredible we've had the opportunity in the last just couple months to go deliver this workshop at Harvard and Hopkins. And we were at University of Pennsylvania last week. And um, the feedback we continue to get, you know, a little part of you is like, oh gosh, 
do we have anything to teach people at Harvard? Like, right. don't they know everything? And to get the feedback that, no, this is absolutely what we've been all longing for is just so gratifying. Now, how are you getting the information to then share with medical groups such as Harvard? You said that you have practicing medical practitioners who are part of Bright Paint. Do. Okay. Everything we do is evidence-based. So it's not, um, and sometimes I think we take some criticism because people, there's some environmental factors, for instance, that unfortunately we can't absolutely recommend until it's totally proven. So everything we're doing is very vetted. There's studies, there's data to back it up. And I think for us being credible in that way and being unwavering in terms of the standards we hold for the information we're putting out there is pretty important. I'll tell you though, the, one of the greatest ways is through our, our cause marketing partnerships. Um, I think what's unique about Bright Pink is it's when we're working with companies all around the country, David's Bridal, Airy by American Eagle Outfitters, eBay, Westfield Malls, Paul Mitchell, all these different brands, um, it's not just about fundraising. To us, it's just as much about getting out there and educating the consumers, the constituents, the associates that, that take part in these brands. Well, because all of those brands have... You, you want their audience. I want their audience. And I want um, those same exact people that are engaging with those brands. That's who I want to be educating. And I want to do it in the context of them taking part in day-to-day life. Shopping for a bridal gown, picking up something at the mall, whatnot. Right. So you said, how many people have gone to your assessyourrisk.org to take that test? How many? 60,000 in the uh, last two years. And how did you get to those people? How did you get the word to those people? So a lot of it is um, digital, just absolutely talking about this on social media, influencers, um, different celebrities, also our cause marketing partners, right? So integrating with them and their communications um, has been powerful. The other thing is, is it's when somebody goes into those educational workshops, the Brighten Up workshops, that's the call to action. So they leave and the next thing we say is, okay, go now online, go, on to this. go to assessorist.org. Exactly. So we've had a chance to educate 20,000 women just in the last 18 months in those in-person workshops. In the 20-minute workshop. Which is pretty incredible, right? We've gotten 20,000 women to take 20 minutes of their day and listen to this workshop and engage with it. So we're really proud of, I think, you know, obviously being a marketing savvy brand, I come from this more brand background. Um, I've always believed that as a nonprofit, you have to hold yourselves to the same standards of excellence when it comes to marketing and brand positioning. I think a lot of nonprofits think if you have a good heart, you can just layer that on at the end. And for us, we see it as um, I always tell, there's a sign in our office that says, aesthetics are an avenue of access. So I genuinely believe if something's beautiful and something like brings you in with the imagery and the tone and everything, that's the difference between someone getting educated and not. So we invest in that. Um, and sometimes people are saying, why is your stuff so pretty? I'm like, is that a compliment or is that a criticism? Like, where are you going with that? <laughs> well, it's like what but, we said earlier that you need to run it like a business. You've got to run you it like a business. You need to get the best deal on your office supplies Absolutely. the same as a for-profit would Totally. It's funny right now at um, a lot of the Chicago airports, so O'Hare, Midway, we have, I think there's 19 big signs up about bright pink in the airports. And I got an email the other day from someone who's like, why is bright pink spending their money doing that? And I was like, actually, somebody who works at placing those in the ads lost his mother to breast cancer. And so anytime someone, a brand is not paying for him, he slots bright pink in. So we're not paying for it. We're not paying a dollar for it. Actually, that's what I think is really cool, though, is when you can create something that other people feel a connection to. I've never wanted Bright Pink to be the Lindsay Avner show. I've never wanted to, um, because 
people are fickle, right? Like, like they're going to outgrow me. This needs to be something that um, when you feel as connected and take ownership of as much as I do or any of the women or men that we serve out there. By the way, are men allowed to attend these workshops? Absolutely. Okay. And I will tell you, I've been so thrilled when men do attend the workshops. What they say to us is, thank you for giving me more credit because you've asked me to wear pink socks and pink ties and do all this stuff. And you want my money. And you want my money. And yet I actually could be a really powerful force for good and helping keep my sister, my wife, my daughter accountable if you just teach me the information. So, so do you encourage totally. women who come to this? Exactly. Or in workplaces, if you do like a lunch and learn, or, right. oh my gosh, absolutely. The more the merrier. And I actually think um, it's been surprising. I remember we went into, um, we do a lot with the WNBA and the NBA and we went into, you know, we go in and spare a lot of, you know, male testosterone sports environments and the men are the ones who are saying thank you so much thanks for letting me be a part of it and we're like of course and i have some fun when i do those workshops right i'm like okay how (laughs) hard is it going to be for us to stand here and talk about breasts and ovaries i'm sure you're dreading this conversation and people giggle and it's fun good for you so how uh you said that you have these ambassadors who are they're not paid so they they train tell us about ambassador program how does somebody become an ambassador what's the training look like and then what are they supposed to go out and do good question so these ambassadors are just passionate individuals who come to us and they say you know i'm looking for more meaning in my life i want to propel bright pink's mission forward and what we do is we have a pretty strong vetting process so it's not just we won't just take anyone there's an interview there's an application there's reference checks And then what happens is once they make it through that process, they go through Bright Pink University. And at Bright Pink University, not only do they learn the basics on delivering this educational workshop, um, so we're making sure that they're statistically sound, right? Like you can't just say all women with the BRCA gene mutation are going to get cancer because that's not true. It's so important for us to um, make sure that these lay people are describing medical information in a really accurate manner. Um, But they also learn about community engagement. So they're really responsible when they graduate from Bright Pink University, they're responsible not only for going out and delivering the talk, but finding audiences to deliver it. Um, So sometimes through some of our partnerships, we might be able to say, oh, this sorority here, we're setting it up, but they're also bringing opportunities to us. And they have they have goals and they get reviewed. Um, and again, this is all in a volunteer capacity. Right. Everything with Bright Pink, I always say you can only improve what you can measure. We're very, very focused on measurement, on making sure that we're not just counting bodies in the room, but how many people go on to take the risk assessment quiz afterwards. Right. Um, pretty important stuff. Again, that for-profit measurement being brought into how I like to explain that is we're not just throwing pasta at the wall we want it to stick you got it I love a lot a lot of organizations that create incredible information but if it's not reaching anybody or if it's not getting people to take action then what's the point yes I mean if someone attends a workshop but they don't go on to change one thing about their behavior then that was kind of a waste of time I think a lot of also you know people are like well Lindsay if you just save one life then it's enough. I'm like, no, it's not no, enough. It's <laughs> Are you kidding? There's right. millions, you know, Bright Pink is going to be over a $3 million organization this year. Like that's responsibly, that's, we better be saving like and impacting thousands of lives. Like that's right. not enough. And you. I think that we have to hold ourselves. I think donors, I think people on the nonprofit side, we got to hold ourselves to higher standards than at least we save one life. So, um, so how long does it take to become an ambassador? What, how many hours of training or what does yeah, that look like? It's just about, it's about um, 18 hours of training. But again, there's that process at a time. Is that 
face-to-face or can somebody do this online? Digitally, or? yeah. Okay. So some of it's independent learning. Some of it we pair people up. Skype and um, the world of kind of, of allowing us to work um, you know, we used to bring everyone together in person and do Bright Pink University, but we realized from a co- we're always trying to look at how can we make every dollar go further. Right. Why don't we just do it digitally? Also, this is hard stuff to learn. It's hard to pack it into one weekend. Now it's over a three week span. Mm-hmm. It's in evenings and some weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, but if people are interested, definitely visit brightpink.org because, um, you know, we run Bright Pink University quarterly. Um, so they're always recruiting. So how many ambassadors do you have? 135 right now. Are they in every state pretty much? Every state. I think I, I think it's like we're in 60 different communities okay. around the country. And it's really incredible people, right? These are people who are working full time. They have families. They're doing that um, or not. But they're so passionate about this. Um, we have a bunch of even survivors who are ambassadors who are saying, gosh, had I received this information, it could have been different. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I feel like for them, it becomes this really powerful way of saying, like, this is my responsibility to get in front of it for someone else. Right. Do most of them, you find, have a personal story? They have a personal story, but it might not be for themselves. So it could be a friend of theirs, a a neighbor, or a family member. And we all have a personal story, right? Like, I... I did just meet someone a couple weeks ago who was like, I don't know anybody who's ever had breast cancer or ovarian cancer. I was like, where have you been living? Like, that is remarkable. I mean, that's amazing. I'm so happy for you, but that's incredible. Okay. So I want to make sure that we've covered all of the key programs and the tools that Bright Pink offers. Great. So tell me what they are. (laughs) Okay. So the first one we talked about, um, assessyourrisk.org. So, so, so important. It combines family health history with lifestyle factors. How long would it take somebody to take that test? Six minutes. It's that fast. That fast. And it's fun, right? Like, I mean, it's not that fun when you're, if you had a couple too many cocktails and you're dragging that wine bottle across the glasses, (laughs) Um, but it's interactive and it's engaging and you'll learn something. I promise you that. We also have a program we call Breast Health Reminders. And as you know, women, it can be so incredibly hard to remember to just check in with your body and know you're normal. So we created this program. Um, It is as easy as texting the word pink, P-I-N-K, to the number 59227. So once again, pink to 59227. You'll have to just click Y back to confirm Y for yes to say, yes, I'm opting into this. Um, Standard text messaging rates apply. But what we love about this program is it's a once a month text message reminder that is encouraging you to treasure your chest or to be proactive with your health. And just check in, but it's a chance for you to just keep this top of mind. This is not something we should just be talking about in October. This is something that we should be talking about all year long. And so it's a once a month text message. And, you know, we'll say things like, your boyfriend's not the only one who should be filling you up this month. Like, make sure you can, you know, right. we have fun with what we, we talk about second base Saturdays, the second right. Saturday of the month, all that stuff. So, you know, this doesn't have to be a dreary, depressing conversation. You right. can have some fun with it. You can have some personality. Um, so Breast Health Reminders, AssessYourWrist.org. And I would just encourage everyone just to visit BrightPink.org. I mean, we just went through a, a big relaunch and it's chock full of so much information that's practical that won't bore you and share it with a woman you love. I think that there's something about when you accumulate knowledge, it comes with a deep responsibility to Mm -hmm. share it and to make sure that it's not just um, you, but you start to ask yourself, how can I be a force for good for other women in my life? Kind of a sidelined question. So what's your personal routine like now? Meaning, are you still going in for screenings? And Oh, good question. Um, so I actually just was at the doctor on Wednesday 
So they basically, since I, they've removed over 95% of my breast tissue, um, there's a small exam they do once a year, but it's more, if it would, it could happen, like something could pop up, but they say that because of the implant, it would almost like kind of hit to the surface. So I need to still be aware from a breast perspective, from an ovarian cancer perspective, there's not a good test out there. All these tests are very, 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 um, they're fine. They're not good. So they don't diagnose cancer early. Um, there's nothing routine about it. So I see the doctor. I stay on oral contraceptives or birth control pills. Birth control pills, a lot of people don't realize from a purely health perspective, five years on your 20s or 30s can reduce your risk for ovarian cancer by up to 50%. Wow. Slash your risk for the deadliest gynecologic disease by up to 50%. Um, and that's that's all just because um, we like to think of the pills as keeping your ovaries quiet for a little bit. So um, I'm still on those. And, and the protocol is that I'll have my ovaries out at 35 or, or 40. I laugh with my fiance. I was like, no pressure. Let's, you know, we're getting married in a couple months. Let's just pop out two kids and get the ovaries out at 35. <laughs> Rock and roll. No pressure. No pressure. <laughs> He's done it before. He's been... Okay. Have we covered all of the programs and tools yeah, that you offer? I think offer that's good because I feel like if they, can, if they can get those three, that's the biggest. Okay, so um, I think I already know the answer to this, but because you say that somebody could take this test on assessyourrisk.org, take the results of that, send them to their doctor, and what if they have a doctor that's not open to this conversation? Such a good question. I think it's so incredibly important to find a doctor that you trust, that you feel like you can talk to, and one that actually is going to engage with you in this conversation. If not, you got to find a different doctor. Okay. I always say it's like you can't be afraid to date around before you commit a little bit. Right. Um, and you should never be afraid of having a, a second opinion. I will say something pretty incredible is through the Affordable Care Act, which a lot of people know as Obamacare, um, every woman in this country is entitled to what they call a well women's exam. So this is huge for us because we used to go in a lot of underserved communities and we would educate women about how important it is to see a doctor once a year. And they would say to us, yeah, 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 that's fine, but my insurance won't cover it or I don't have anyone to pay for it. It is now mandated that women should be able to go in, talk about risk, have a chance to get a clinical breast exam, which means the doctor will actually feel their breasts. I think that's important. Women need to know that should be happening. A lot of women will say, sometimes my doctor doesn't examine. They should be. You should find a doctor that does. Um, they, they're going to have a conversation. They're going to actually do a pelvic exam and feel your ovaries, amongst other things. Big misconception out there is a lot of people think, oh, when I get a pap smear, they're testing for ovarian cancer. They're not. They're testing for cervical cancer, which is um, far less deadly, far less open. It's just been, a, I would argue, a better marketed test in some ways that's very accurate in one way but it's really important even when you feel well to go to the doctor once a year have a doctor you can trust but then think of that that's one day there's 364 other days where you should be doing um, and engage with your health constantly okay well let's talk about that then what mm. should be doing the other 364 days a year Good, 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 good. Well, the first thing is to, um, I would argue, is to know your family's health history. And I think keep that conversation alive. Sometimes holidays present a really good opportunity to bring up this conversation. Sometimes in some families that don't want to talk about it, I've heard women say, you know, I brought an article or like I, I talked about someone else and that allowed me to get in to have the conversation with my family. So first and foremost, making sure that that as that evolves, changes, if people are diagnosed, you're, you're sharing with your doctor. The other thing I would say is to know your normal. And, and when I say know your normal, what I mean is 
everyone's breasts are different. Like some people have one's bigger, one's smaller, smaller areoles, all these different things. And whatever is normal for you, it's actually far more normal, a lot of that stuff, than not normal. Here's the thing, though, is you need to know what the lay of the land is, so to say, because if you know what's normal and you're so used to checking in with your body, if something ever appears that's not normal, you'll be able to monitor it and speak up. If you notice any changes. So really important on an ongoing basis. And that's why I think breast health reminders are such a great tool. So again, texting pink to 59227. The other thing I would say is practicing risk-reducing behavior. So, you know, we want women to maintain a healthy body weight, limit fat, um, exercise for 30 minutes on most days, limiting alcohol intake to one drink a day or eliminating entirely, not smoking, breastfeeding if it makes sense for your family planning. Um, breastfeeding doesn't have to be done all at once, one to two years non-consecutively. Um, has the power to re- reduce your risk. And then for ovarian cancer risk reduction, um, it's all about understanding the symptoms. Ovarian cancer, the symptoms are, are really vague. They're things like feeling bloated or pain when you urinate, things like, like as women, we feel all the time. So it's not about, I ate too much Chinese food last night, I'm bloated. This is about, you know, the bloating's not going away. It's been two to three weeks. And we encourage women to go to their doctors and say, could it be my ovaries? And then obviously exploring oral contraceptives if it makes sense for you. Wow. Wow. So what would a salon, not that the entire audience here is the beauty industry because it's not. So what advice do you have for businesses and individuals to get the word out? It's great. In addition to just talking to their own friends and everybody has one or two or 20 or 30 women in their lives that they need to take responsibility for with getting this information to them. What, yeah. what can businesses do? Well, there's a lot. Um, one of the things, the first thing I would say is keep the conversation alive. I think that that is like so important, especially in different businesses that are touching consumers on a day-to-day basis. Think about how can you be using that platform to inc- to integrate health information and just the consumer builds such trust and credibility with them. Um, the other thing I would say is they have the opportunity to participate, you know, whether it's, we have a new platform that we just launched this week. It's called VI Pink. And what it is I like is VI Pink. VI Pink.org. And we are looking for VIPs who want to VI Pink their salon or their business of any kind. And basically, what that means is you make a commitment to both educate on behalf of Bright Pink and fundraise. So it's really cool to have a chance um, to, you know, whether it could be um, a Pink Friday or a week-long campaign or a month-long campaign where you can get health information. Bright Pink has all these different things you can download. We can send people materials. Um, It's all through this portal, vipink.org. You can set up a fundraising page. But then also you're making the commitment to educate women. And I think that is such a great, easy way, whether it's an individual or a business, this tool is so fantastic. So again, it's VI Pink, and it's only for the VIPs, which we know there's a lot of out there. <laughs> Congratulations. Well, you know, everybody thinks that, well, I don't have money to give, but, you know, awareness and education is just as important as giving the money. Of course, you, you need the money. And it We need can, the money, you guys. We need the money. It could be as simple. I know there was some of our ladies in Cleveland who, you know, said, we want to do a campaign that's super easy. So what they did is for a whole month, they did swap your drink for bright pink. So instead mm-hmm. of going to get a coffee in the morning... That $2 that they were going to give, they were like, well, let's give it to Bright Pink. Swap your drink for Bright Pink. They're That's whatever. Great. So it could be as small as that. That's great. Can you believe it's been well over an hour already? No. You yeah. are way too much fun to talk to. Well, though. you talk really fast. I hope fast, I'm not. So you t- you t- oh. Which is great. No, trust me, because we got a lot of information in a very short period of time. I but- do talk. I get really excited, too. You're like, don't slam the table. <laughs> it's screwing up the audio. <laughs> it's okay. So, um... 
because I have some other questions sort of unrelated to this, yeah, but, but I'd not. Love to. But uh, you have any final messages about Bright Pink that you want to share with our audience? I would just say there's so many things in life that you can't control. And there's so many diseases out there that we know nothing about. Autism and Alzheimer's. And, and we're still trying to figure it out. We're just on the pancreatic cancer even, right? And I look at breast cancer and ovarian cancer as we are so fortunate to know so much. Like, how do we get ahead of it? How can we make sure that women stop dying of these diseases needlessly? And how can we change this conversation from one around cancer into health? I think that's my biggest challenge out there. And again, just encouraging people to visit brightpink.org where all of this content conversation lives. Well, well, because it is, for the most part, needless. It's not necessary. I get really upset sometimes when I find out someone's diagnosed stage three or stage four. It's hard because people in my life are like, you can't get so upset about that. And what I always say is, had Bright Pink been stronger, bigger in front of them, like a couple months before, a couple years before, how could that have been different? And it's not just about that person. It's about like their family, like their son and daughter, their husband, like I'm sick of it. Like I don't want it anymore and it doesn't need to be. And so I think, you know, that's what this is all about ultimately. Now, because you are in front of a lot of young people, mostly young women, I'm sure, um, I'm sure they ask you all kinds of questions about not just this, but career advice. Totally. So what are some of the things that come up and what do you like to share? Well, a couple of things. I would say there's three main things that I love that have just been very influential to me, which is some advice I got early on in my career was fail fast and have the right kind of failures. Um, and I was like, what's what's a good failure? Like, how does that even exist? And, and the idea is that if you're actually going to be doing something that's not been done before, it's going to be hard. So expect it to be hard. But when you fail, like, catch it in the front. So, you know, put things in beta tests. Get it out there. Don't get everything so perfect before you just push it out into the market and figure it out. Be on a constant learning journey. But fail fast and don't make the same mistake twice. Um, and so in my team all the time we talk about there's about great failures. We actually are known to celebrate our failures. Like when there's an awesome failure, like it's like, let's open a bottle of wine and celebrate it. And people laugh at that. But I think as women and men, we just seem to get a little more comfortable talking about that. I love when I, when I talk to major donors of ours, a lot of people will sit there and say everything that's working right. I like to also talk about what's not working right, because I think that if we can be more honest about that, Mm -hmm. I think it shows vulnerability and it shows that we're trying to crack a really hard problem. It's going to take a lot of effort, money, smarts, resources to do it. A second piece of advice I got from a movie that was out a couple years ago, and I laugh at this because it's the weirdest movie title ever. So I don't know if anyone saw that movie, We Bought a Zoo. With I did with uh, Matt Damon. Matt Damon. It was yes, a great movie. I yeah. love that movie. That and you know what? Movie. Anyone who ever says that movie is not good is it was so a great movie. awful because that yeah. is an amazing movie. I love that movie. Well, so there's a line when you're probably going to remember this where he's talking about his son who wants to ask out a girl. And he, what he says to him is he goes, Sometimes all it takes is 20 seconds of courage. Um, 20 seconds of courage for something really, really amazing to happen. I don't know if I'm getting the lines as perfect as handsome Matt Damon did, but. The idea of 20 seconds of courage has become so powerful to me in my career that it's so interesting that if you can actually take the fear away and sometimes just think, okay, I need to ask this person for money or I need to um, talk about this hard discussion with a significant other or I need to make a big change in my life. Sometimes it's literally the difference between you sitting with 20 seconds of courage, crazy, insane courage. It's really, really hard. But if you can summon it, 
something great is on the other side. And so I just love, love, love that. And anytime I come to those junctures where I'm like, oh, it's so much easier not to go there. All I think is 20 seconds of courage. That's all it takes. Wow, that's great advice. Which I really love. And then I guess the third thing I would say is in your career early on, I would say get to know the norms of wherever you're working and be someone who is always setting your boss up for success. Um, make other people look good. And if you spend your time in your careers not thinking about yourself, but you're thinking about how am I elevating my boss, my team, my peers, um, you have no idea the power that that has in terms of making you look good yourself. Um, and it also keeps you focused on the right stuff, which is focused on the business and keeps your ego, I would say, in check. So it's not all about, okay, how much more can I get? What, 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 what do I want? It's not about you. It's about that. Also, I think just looking at the idea that we can go to work, especially early on in our careers, and someone is paying us to go to work and be on this learning journey. Like that is such a blessing. And looking at that as a blessing versus, oh, I got to trudge to work. Like have a good attitude. It makes such a difference. And I always tell people, try and be that breath of fresh air. Don't ever be that person that people are like, oh gosh, I have to meet with that one. Like be the person that's like brings it, um, but be authentic and be sincere. Don't force it. If it's not in your DNA to be really enthusiastic, don't do that. Right. But just show up in a way where you're really looking out for other people that you're showing up in the right way. That should be in everybody's DNA. You don't yeah. have to be the life of the party. You don't have to be. No, the... not at all. And I would say find ways to just like focus on others. I think that our society today can be so focused on like the immediate and the self. And it's all about me and what I want in my life. Like, you know, God willing, we'll all have really long careers. There's going to be decades ahead of us to do different things in the beginning. Like make other people look good. It will never, ever, ever let you down. Yeah. Somebody gave me that advice a long time ago that don't ever assume that you're the smartest person or the most talented person because you never will be. Ever. But you can be the most positive person. You, I love that. Yeah. And and that's, and, and think about, you know, we talked about all that, the stuff related to bright pink. Think about what you have control over and what you don't have control over. Mm. And when you have the power to exert influence, do it in a way that's for good. Yeah. Hmm. I'm just picturing you speaking and you're done and you're just mobbed oh, by no. young girls. Well, I think that's something, though, that like I, I wish our society more taught. The concept of service across the board. Not just hmm. service in the context of business, but like service in the context of life. Like helping women see. Sometimes what I'll tell people is, you know, someone will say, I'm thinking about a career change. I really don't know what I should do. Um, what do you think? And I'll say, go get involved in an awesome nonprofit that you're really passionate about and like roll your sleeves up, get dirty in that way. What a great trial ground right. to try and figure it out in the concept of, of service. I think the other thing I would just say, Wynn, is anytime you have an opportunity, you go to work every day, you deliver at work and your boss is obligated to pay you or your company's obligated to pay you. The real magic happens when someone takes you under their wing and they mentor you and they say, I'm really looking out for you. But no one is obligated to do that. Mm -hmm. So if you can be that person that other people want to be pushing forward and they want to be cheering on your success, mm -hmm. you'll always, always, always be on the right side mm -hmm. in your career. That advice you give of, of just rolling up your sleeves and getting down and dirty with a nonprofit, because... The best people you're going to meet are other people who are volunteering their time and talent for a nonprofit. You got it. I mean, I yeah. think that at today... The best place to network is not at a bar. No! It's not at a networking event. It's 
working at a nonprofit. You got it. And just in volunteering and service. And I laugh because I think there's been a couple um, relationships and marriages that have happened through Bright Pink. And I laugh. My fiance says it's made you a little cocky because you keep saying, I'm so good at it. I'm so good at it. Meanwhile, I've bombed so many setups lately that (laughs) I don't know how good I am at it. No, we work with Habitat for Humanity and it's incredible how many people come together. Come together. Yeah. You know, so on one build... There's a doctor, there's a lawyer, there's a successful this person, there's uh, all together for the same cause. And I like, anytime you can strip that power dynamic, and that's where I think nonprofits can play, you know, we do these concepts where we we host dinners. Maybe when I can even convince you at some point to host a dinner, really just interesting people from all walks of life. Mm -hmm. And we have a conversation related to, you know, talk about a time in your life when you made a change personally and professionally to impact your future. And it naturally con- eventually leads to the conversation around bright pink. And what we love about it is it's just 10 people sitting around a dinner table, mm. right? It's just 10 people. It doesn't matter who has more money, who has more influence, who has more clout. It's just 10 like souls who believe in a lot of good and mm. have hope and possibility. That's great. Lindsay, do you have a final message for our listeners? I would just say thank you for the opportunity. Mm. And I hope that all of your journeys are filled with a lot of learning and failing fast, and ultimately just a lot of brightness. Wow. You're adorable. (laughs) That man is marrying up. Thank you. Oh, he's pretty (laughs) awesome himself. Thanks, sweetheart. Thank you so much. That was awesome. 